That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, available on Amazon and everywhere. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Perez, and I am joined by Matt Thornton. So not only is Matt uh, a, a martial artist, he's um, the founder, president uh, of a Straight Blast Gym. He's also an author. He's got his book out. It's called The Gift of Violence. And I think even more impressive, uh, this is his second appearance on my on my podcast. Matt, you're the first guest I've had who's uh been been kind enough to come back so thanks awesome. for coming back man i'm making history there there, there we go um so uh, we haven't we haven't spoken in uh in a little while um uh you were you were working on the book uh for one i absolutely love the title the gift of violence uh it's uh it's provocative and uh how did it uh, how did it come about um how, did you come up with it or was did the editors how how that happened i got to admit that the idea for that title came from a book agent i had okay and she read my manuscript and i think i had i had a couple working titles one was 100 lessons in violence and different things like that and she said i think you should write about the gift of violence because it's provocative and i like that i also like the fact that it's kind of a play on what i think is before my book, the best book that was written on the subject, which was The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, which I always recommend to people. Um, so I thought, yeah, it's a perfect title. So we went with that. I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, The Gift of Fear. Um, uh, yeah, that's a great Maybe book. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Sure. So Gavin DeBecker, really, I want to say it, it might be close to 30 years old now, 20, 25 years old. But the premise of the book is very simple. He was an investigator and he interviewed thousands of victims of crime. And inevitably what happens initially when they talk about it is they'll, they'll have a, a sense that everything happened very suddenly. You know, all of a sudden the perpetrator was upon them and they were attacked or something like that. But with careful questioning, almost in almost every single case, there was a long segment, a sequence of events that preceded that attack that the victim themselves either didn't notice or, and this is where, where the book becomes more poignant, tried to rationalize it away because they didn't, they don't want that to be true. They don't want to think about people that way. They, they, you know, they want to think of themselves as a good person and people wouldn't do that. And they had all these internal instincts firing off in them, telling them all these alarm bells, telling them something was wrong. And they overrode that. And then now all of a sudden they're in the presence of real fear, which is a choiceless thing because the threat is upon you. And I think that's a really important point. Cause like I talk about in the book, we're all, every one of us sitting here is an amazing survivor of incredible circumstances. Cause every one of our ancestors procreated and lived long enough <laughs> to procreate, you know, and they didn't do that by being stupid. They did that by having really solid instincts for predators and, and for danger. And we have that within us. We all have it. Everybody has it. And learning to listen to that, learning not to override that, making sure you don't rationalize it away or try and rationalize it away when you start to feel it is uh, a big point of his book. And it's a big part, uh, certainly a part of what I wrote about as well, because I think it's something, if I had to pick one thing that would help keep people safe, obviously, besides training or any of the, anything physical, it would definitely be learning how to listen and pay attention to those instincts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems like uh, if, if you look at like all of the elements that go, that could get in the way there, there's like um, uh, 
I guess political correctness might might be a way. Like, oh, I don't, like, uh, uh, I don't want to treat. Uh, I don't, I don't want to uh, make it like all men are dangerous. Therefore, I don't want to make a stink about this creepy guy who's you know in the elevator with me. Or uh, it could be something of you know just like alcohol. The amount of you know drinking that goes into just impairing not only like your judgment but but your your own you know self awareness and, and where you are and how people are are, you know, are interacting with you. And I, I've sort of found like, as I've gotten, as I've gotten older and I drink less and I don't go out that much, I, you know, here <laughs> I'm starting to become like really old where I'm like, Oh man, I can't believe people are still going out at like 10 30 at night. And like, get, there's nothing but trouble that would happen at that, at that hour. Meanwhile, it's like, come on, old man, you know, we, we've, uh, you were there yourself. Right. You know? yeah. Right. No, it's very true. And, and um, the acronym that, that the book is about mind is basically one. It's really the only acronym I use in the book. And it's, it's the, the formula to keep people safe. And at the beginning, the most important single piece of that is the M the beginning, which is maturity. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the data again, a lot of people don't realize most of the perpetrators of these violent crimes are young. So the typical age of an offender is going to be between 17 and 22. And it kind of peaks at 19 and 20. And then every, that's true of everything, rape, armed robbery, assault. And after you get about 23, 24, it starts to dramatically drop off. So the people who are committing these crimes are overwhelmingly young men. The victims of the crimes are the same age. And um, acting mature and being in mature places, doing mature things, that definitely puts you in a completely different category in terms of whether or not you're going to become a victim of some of these assaults. Mm hmm and uh uh i have to admit like i think one of the uh, my version of junk food uh and i know a lot of people like they'll have like their uh their junk uh tv watching or they watch like reality tv and for me my junk food is watching uh basically videos online whether it's on youtube or on twitter of just public fights yeah and it's it's something where i i'm like i i should be asleep right now but uh, here's like another one. It's just an endless scroll of more and more people in public fighting. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes the people fighting don't know how to fight. No. Like it's, it's so clear. And mm -hmm. I'm just amazed at the, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's like the, the assurance of bravado. You have a, a, a part in your book about, about bravado, like stepping into a uh, fight and having, and obviously, have never thrown a punch before, and thinking things are going to go your way. Like mm -hmm. what, what, what's, uh, what's wrong with me? One for kind of enjoying watching those videos, and then, you know, what's wrong with the uh, the, the participants or the you know, willing or non-willing? Yeah, it is like it's almost like a car accident. You can't help but look, or a train accident. Um, I've obviously done that as well. There's a couple things that stand out when you do that in almost every single one of those fights. If one of the people involved knew how to do a guillotine choke, they would win every single one of those fights if you watch it. Because there's inevitably a moment where somebody just has their head down and they're just flailing about. And it's a simple guillotine choke would end that. And you realize, um, which in a way, is a good thing, an optimistic thing, that the vast majority of people, thankfully, don't know how to fight. And this is true of, of men and young boys. Everybody wants to, especially men and young men especially, want to pretend that they can fight. They want other people to think that they can fight. It becomes really important in, in terms of how they self-identify. So it's not um, confusing as to why people would 
would want to behave that way or engage in some of those assaults. I mean, it's almost a rite of passage, unfortunately, for a lot of young men, especially if they don't have another route or they don't have strong uh, male role models in their life or fathers. But, um, yeah, the vast majority of every single one of those encounters could be one if the other person had maybe six months of Brazilian jiu-jitsu training or a little bit of wrestling, and that would be enough. I mean, first of all, you can avoid most of those circumstances, but if you get caught in a circumstance where you can't, I think watching those videos sh should make people feel good after they've done a little bit of training because you, you realize, okay, I would probably be okay in this particular circumstance. I'd be able to defend myself if I had to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, you, uh, with the straight blast gym, I mean, you've been, you know, teaching, uh, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and self-defense and, and training, you know, actual professional fighters uh, for so long uh, with the stuff that, that that's been going on. Cause I think I, I remember uh, you commenting about uh, one of the video, one video recently where you're like, Oh, this would be, this would be over very quickly. If this guy knew how to, how to put a choke in um, with, with what we've been seeing, like uh, for with chokes in particular, and I'm thinking specifically about uh the incident on, in the New York City subway uh, a little while back, and I don't know all the details of it, uh, but uh, a, a a young man, uh, he's a a Marine. He's he's now he's going to be going to trial for uh, some uh, some form of murder, or manslaughter, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, when I've been when, in my training with with jujitsu, it's always like that's like almost the nicest thing someone can do to you is just choke you unconscious, leave you alone, and then move away. Um, and I wonder if incidents like that are, are going to kind of put a stink on, on you know, grappling uh, in general, even as like a self-defense. Yeah. No, I worry about that as well. More, Even more than that, with that particular case, which I think is a bit of a travesty, I don't think you should have been brought up on charges at all. Again, I, don't, I only know what I've read in the press like you mm -hmm. and everybody else has. So maybe there's um, details about that incident that I'm, I'm not privileged to, but from what I saw that that was somebody who was trying to defend other people. And if you put somebody like that in jail and they wind up getting arrested for that, the only people who are going to be hurt primarily by that are the most vulnerable, the people that would be on that train, the elderly. I mean, the, the guy that he choked had broken, not had a long arrest record, including just randomly walking up to an elderly woman and breaking her eye socket. Yeah. And those are the kind of people who are going to be hurt in those circumstances because the next time he starts threatening people on a train, and my understanding in that situation is multiple people called 911. And I think it takes a lot for multiple New Yorkers to call 911. Yeah. They're not one to panic. So obviously he was scaring people. And the next time something like that happens, who's going to step up? Who's going to step up and say no and, and defend the elderly woman or the other person that's too vulnerable to, to defend themselves? As far as the choke, I am very skeptical that had anything to do with this guy's death. Again, I, I don't know all the details, but, you know, if you're going to kill somebody with a choke, you have to hold it for a certain amount of time. And my understanding was when they got to the next stop on the subway, the police were there. Uh, the guy was awake. He wasn't dead. Oh, wow. And the pictures I saw weren't even a choke, but just what we call a harness. And he was on his back uh, mm -hmm. with a harness control. And there were two other men you know, that we're also helping him restrain this guy. So I think a lot of times you have things like excited delirium or drug use or fentanyl, or there's all kinds of other things that go into to some of these uh, situations. And I, I'm skeptical that um, his actions 
led to that guy's death. But even more to the point, I think it's pretty clear he was trying to defend other people. And there were people in that situation stuck on that tube who were afraid um, of being hurt. And, you know, somebody that steps up like that and does the right thing and tries to restrain a bad guy like that, I think that's somebody that should we should be giving him a medal, not arresting him. Yeah, and there, uh, I remember reading a lot of the commentary of people who were, you know, either of the mind of, uh, like, there are other things you could have done to restrain this guy. And it's like, I, I have a, a three-year-old and I have a two-year-old, or soon to be two-year-old. And even just restraining them is a difficult, difficult uh, uh, job if they're squirming and, and moving around. So now, you know, go from someone who's, you know, 25 pounds to a fully uh, grown man. It's like, it's really, really tough to restrain somebody, especially if you don't have, uh, you know, have uh, training. In, uh, yeah, no, it's super hard. And then you get somebody whose adrenaline is going and he, he may or may not have been high on who knows what, but just adrenaline alone, you know, it could take four or five large men to hold somebody down like that. Yeah. And if you look at a, if you think about a, a violent altercation like that, once it turns physical, if the other person's not going to go away, if they're not going to give up and walk away and you have to end that fight, the only way you're going to end that is by so much head trauma that the other person goes unconscious. In other words, striking them until they, until they're unconscious and knocked out um, or putting a choke on. And when you put a blood choke on them, you go one, two, three, and then they fall asleep. And it's the most humane, painless, safest possible way you can defend yourself in a situation like that. Compare it to having to sit there and elbow the guy in the face until, you know, he's no longer awake. So between those two things, the choke is safer for the person doing it. And it's almost in every case safer for um, the suspect as well. But unfortunately, because of situations like this, because of moral panic, because of ignorance about how physical altercations work, there's a lot of police departments and they can't even use those holds anymore. Yeah, yeah, but there's definitely the, the, the cops are no longer to... to able to use that and then the police who have never even trained to begin with like those are other another set of videos that i watch where it's like three or four police officers trying to you know take down somebody and it's like man if they had even just like a like a like a, a basic wrestling takedown they could you know that the, this situation could be a lot um you know a lot more humane yeah here in oregon people don't realize but i was out at the training center here in portland talking to the guys uh a few months ago and they only get a few hours a year like literally four or five hours a year at most that they get defensive tactics training and that's it and they'll get four or five hours at the academy and then they're put onto the street and so if they don't train themselves if they don't take it upon themselves to train which i think every police officer should considering that's your job but if they don't they're not going to get much of any training at all and that's what you're going to wind up. You're going to wind up people maybe escalating and going to deadly force in situations where they might otherwise not need to. Um, but sadly, because of what's happened with the defund the police movement and what we had here in Portland, they're so understaffed that even the people they want to train and they want to bring people in and get the officers trained, you can't pull them off the street to get them training on the mat, you know, a, a couple times a month because they can't take them off patrol. Like the last two years here in Portland, we had one officer in traffic division, one. And the last two years in Portland, we had record high traffic fatalities. Go figure, right? Mm. Because, because nobody's, no, nobody's getting pulled over. There's no traffic enforcement. Nobody's getting a speeding ticket. Nobody's getting a ticket for running a red light. They're so understaffed. And so 
even though they want to get the officers training and the officers want the training, unless they're training on their off time, um, they can't get it. Mm. And everything that's happened since George Floyd has taken, made every one of those circumstances worse. It's made it, it's made, and it, and it's worse again. I hate to keep repeating myself, but it's worse for the people who are most vulnerable. It's worse for the people in the, in the neighborhoods that are supposedly the ones that, uh, the people who were marching in the BLM rallies were there to protect, and it's had just the opposite effect. Yeah, you know, you know. Just going back to the subway uh, for for a second, um, it's it's really hard to figure out what it, you know what you will be, what's considered legal and what's considered illegal as far as self defense. Because mm-hmm. anyone in New York, like you look at some of these uh, some of these cases, you're like. Oh, the, the New York does not believe in self defense. You will not be protected in self defense. And after the um, the the Penny uh, case, uh, I, I think it was like only like a couple of weeks later, there was an incident, another incident on a subway where uh, a man and his girlfriend were being attacked by a guy, mm-hmm. and the dude uh, in self defense pulled a knife and killed the guy with a knife. Now, when I was growing up in New York, I was under the impression like. Uh, you know, if you, uh, you're allowed to have a knife, but the blade has to be very, you know, very short. Right. But the idea of even using that as a, you know, uh, as a, in self-defense, it's like, no, you're going to get charged with something, but yet right. this guy was able to go. So it's like, here we are, here we're, we're in a situation where if you stab the guy in self-defense, you're okay. But if you try to restrain the guy and he dies, then you're going to get fucked in the, in the courts. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know what, you know, what to make of that. Yeah. I saw that case too. And I, I'm inclined to feel that the people's ability to write, to defend themselves is so important that I was happy that he wasn't charged as right. well. But in that particular circumstance, my understanding was the guy hit his girlfriend and then started to walk away, went away. He chased the guy down and then stabbed him and, and killed him. Um, with a knife that I don't think he was supposed to have. Mm. Um, do I think he, sh- I'd like to see him charged? Not necessarily, but between those two cases, it seems very obvious that that's a much more aggressive one. You have a, a, a group of guys, three or four men, I believe, at least three that were restraining this guy in New York and just trying to hold him to keep him from attacking other people. And then in the other circumstance, you have somebody that actually followed the perpetrator and then stabbed him. And uh, the only two things that are different about that is I think the, the guy that did the stabbing, it was either in the Bronx or Brooklyn. So it's different district, dis- different district attorney. And he was black. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think that that's probably the, the main circumstance. I think if, um, if everybody involved in the subway altercation uh, was black, I don't think you would ever heard about this on the news. Yeah, it's a really troubling um, element to all these stories where it's like, you know, how can we bring that, you know, some kind of racial component to it? And th- this stuff, especially in a city like like New York, that is just, I mean, you know, the mo- most diverse place on the planet. It's like it, it's going to be really hard to, you know, chalk something up to blatant racism, especially where y- y- you have a number. I mean, in, again, in the Penny case where you have you have. You have him trying to restrain the guy with the help of two other guys, one of which I believe is Hispanic and the other guy was black. You know, it's, right. so it's sort of um, it's like th- those those things just just break down where I think a more um, probably a, uh, you know, a, 
a more realistic interpretation of what's going on is you have uh, mentally ill, fucked up, violent people who are being allowed to basically run rampant. And then they're going to come up against, uh, you know, civilized human beings who want to go about that, you know, want to live their lives and stuff like this is going to happen. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And, um, he, and he, and he probably would have assaulted more people. I mean, it had a, he had a, a history of just randomly assaulting people. And that's the tough part too, is because there is a mental illness component that's, that's here. It's the same thing in Portland. There's a good percentage of the people on the streets in Portland are hardcore drug addicts, but there's also a percentage that are mentally ill and, you know, you can't make someone take their medication. You can't make someone stay in a halfway house. The police do the best they can under the circumstances, but they're walking around with free reign in the city. And it's very difficult to know in a, when you're dealing with somebody like that, whether or not they are going to attack you. If you're a single mom that's walking with your kids or um, elderly person or somebody like that, and you have somebody who's behaving erratically like that and in your presence, you don't know if all of a sudden they're going to turn and swing at you or stab you. We see Every single day, there are stories coming out in New York and around San Francisco and all around the country where people are randomly just assaulting, pushing someone in front of a train or a push, you know, push shoving an elderly person all the way downstairs or walking by somebody and stabbing them in the back. This is happening. Yeah. And in many cases, the offenders are, are mentally ill and they belong in off the street. They belong somewhere getting help and we're not we're not helping them, uh, despite the massive amount of money that's being supposedly spent on the problem. And that makes it even tougher because for the average person, even if you're a mental health care worker, but it's difficult. But for the average person, they, you're not going to be able to read somebody like that the way you could, you know, somebody who is maybe just after your wallet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, when those cases, you know, c- come up and uh, the other day I was um, I was reading some some local uh, news website and it was basically just case after case after case of like things like that. Just, yeah. you know utter just violence just out of nowhere from you know for no reason no money was taken but yet somebody was beaten up and you know and all that and you know there's a there's a part of me where i'm like if if that's all i was reading every day i would walk out of my house just you know completely petrified even if or maybe i wouldn't even walk out of my house you know um so i guess there's a balance you need to have with you know what is statistically probable but also uh, it, but also it's like, well, what is done with those people? Right. Cause right. I, I often, you know, uh, when people bring up, um, uh, crime statistics in New York, it's like, well, crime is going down and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it might be going down, but, but it's still happening. And it's like, what do you propose is done to the people who are doing stuff like this, who are making, you know, life a living hell for the, you know, for the, for the, for the neighborhood. Right. Yeah. There's two things about that. Um, Violent crime is going up and around the country, and it has been since the summer of 2020 with the George Floyd. We had record homicides uh, that the United States hadn't seen in decades. Um, And the thing that's the most infuriating about it is we know how to fix that. That is a solvable problem. We've fixed it before. Uh, We know how to do it. It's happened in New York before. Um, New York City was for a while one of the safest big cities in, in the world. And the way you stop violent crime like that is you have vigorous 
policing that are being police were being proactive. They're out in the community. They're talking to people. They're pulling cars over They're They're enforcing every law, whether we're talking about jaywalking or spray painting a building. And the people who are violent repeat offenders need to get put away and locked away from the community so they don't do that anymore. And if you do those three things, you support law enforcement and staff them with enough people. You enforce every law, which is the opposite of what we're doing now. Now we have all these laws. We're just letting people go. It's shoplifting. Just let them go. Well, they're breaking windows. Just let's just property. Just let them go. That's a huge mistake. But you enforce every one of those laws. And in that net, you're going to pick up the guys who committed 42 assaults and 16 rapes. And, and you take somebody like that and you lock them up. And lo and behold, within a year or two, the crime rate dramatically drops. It's a fixable problem. We know how to do it. The question is, whether or not we will, and, and I think it depends on the, on the area. But if I look at Chicago and the mayor that just elected in Chicago, it seems like they're going the opposite direction. And I can tell you right now that's going to be a horror show. So that's one thing. Um, the first point you talked about as far as statistics, so I also think is really important, and I try and address it in my book. I don't want to make people super paranoid because I'm talking about street crime. But when I went to write my book, I realize almost everything that's written on the market and almost all the self-defense stuff is always geared towards this idea of a stranger in a parking lot who's going to come up and assault you or grab you, somebody outside the house. And the, the vast majority of all violent crime is committed by people you know. Mm. And I think that's an important thing for, for people to understand. It's true, not just of women and children, but men as well. And so patrolling the boundaries of your own life and making sure you don't have those those kind of, I call them character disordered in the book, but making sure you don't have people like that around you is the most important step. Uh, and then when you go outside, you're going to, now you're, now you've dramatically lowered the odds and now you're talking about street crime and most people, most places in the United States are still relatively safe, but, but it's there and you still have to pay attention and be aware of your surroundings because every day, you know, people are being hurt. Yeah. The, um, uh, the new uh, mayor in Chicago, um, I guess the latest thing that I heard about him is that he was very offended uh, that, uh, the per that members of the press were referring to these uh, mobs of teenagers uh, that were, you know, kind of, you know, that were robbing, that were rioting. Uh, he was offended that they referred to them as mobs rather than large gatherings. And right. he, he actually said, like, they're not little Al Capones. Right. So this guy, so you're dealing with a mayor who doesn't even know that what, what, one of the one, one of the definitions of mob is a is a is a large violent gathering of people. He actually thought that they were they, they were comparing them to to Al Capone uh, or or that or mafia. Just He's insane. completely delusional. Unfortunately, this morning I turned on the news and I saw it. I believe it was in Chicago. You had a little eight or nine year old girl who somebody just walked up on the street and just shot her in the head and killed. Her. Just an, another day there, so we'll see what the mayor has to say about that. I um, there's a a, a conservative uh, journalist, uh, Heather McDonald, mm -hmm. who uh, I think it's one of her beats. Uh, it's one of the most unfortunate beats that she's written on. It's just the amount of children that are murdered mm -hmm. in in these cities. You know, we a lot of the stuff, a lot of the cases that make it to the headlines are you know involve you know adults. And it's just, uh, you know, hearing about, you know, kids just dying, whether it's through stray bullets or, you know, this, you know, nightmare scenario that you just that you just talked about. It's really hard to it, it's hard for me to to wrap my my head around. I can't even imagine what it would be like if if that was a 
you know, normal day to day or week to week thing growing up in those, in those types of cities. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And yeah, I'm a father of six kids. And the last thing you want to even think about as a father is something happening to your kids, but, um, but it does. And, and oftentimes they are the victims of just straight bullets that, I mean, the majority of the cases where the kids are shot, which happens every weekend, every weekend, somewhere in Baltimore, Chicago, there's going to be a, a toddler or infant or somebody like that that gets shot and killed with a stray bullet. And it's usually just, uh, they're just collateral damage between, you know, gang members that are shooting each other in those neighborhoods. And when you pull the police out of those neighborhoods, that stuff starts to increase tenfold and you get a lot more hurt kids. So it's, it is tragic. Yeah. You were talking about um, uh, Portland being short staffed and police. I think I just read something recently about uh, a similar thing happening with the, in LA and Los Angeles as well, just not having enough, um, you know, uh, enough police. And what, what I find interesting is, you know, the, it would be one thing if the people who are, you know, for, you know, defund the police, were for, say, for example, funding private security or personal self-defense, but the, they don't go hand in hand. It's defund the police, but then also uh, disarm uh, the c- citizenry, uh, police your own neighborhoods, unless, of course, you get violent with the, you know, the perpetrator, then you can't do that. So it's sort of, I, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what position they want to put, you know, people in. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I don't know what the agenda is here. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it, it could definitely take you down that road. I, I mean, I've definitely gotten a lot more cynical over the last couple of years. I think this is the case around the country, but I can tell you for sure. It's the case here in Portland that the people who were the activists who were pushing the defund the police movement don't live in those neighborhoods. They don't live in the neighborhoods where the police are going to be pulled out. And if you talk to the people who live in those neighborhoods, if you're talking about black neighborhoods, when they're pulled, 85 plus percent want more increased police presence in their neighborhood, not less. So overwhelmingly, they're asking for police. It's here in Portland, it's wealthy, upper middle class, spoiled white kids who would go into those neighborhoods and attempt to burn down the police station over and over again and wind up burning down one or two black businesses. Um, and that's, that's what they're doing. And they have no idea about the what they're doing or why they're doing it. Um, and they're not subject to the consequences of it. And a lot of the a lot of the voters who vote for these progressive policies have the ability to live in areas that do have private security or in areas where, you know, there is going to be an increased police presence. They're not living in a neighborhood where the eight year old gets shot in a, a drive by. And so they, in a lot of ways, they're immune from the consequences of their own policies, which is part of the problem. And the only reason I think it's, I hope, changing just a little bit now is it's gotten so bad that it's starting to affect them, starting mm-hmm. to affect their neighborhoods to the point where they're noticing. And as soon as that happens, they will be screaming for a more increased police presence. Mm. Are there any... Uh- any, any more autonomous zones uh, happening? No. In, in, <laughs> no, and that was in, that was insane. We had a whole three or four blocks that were just people don't realize were just taken over, and we had guys walking around with assault rifles, you know, Antifa dorks walking around with assault rifles, preventing people from going in and out. And the fact that we allowed that blew my mind. Well, we that's a th- yeah. businesses and um, and apartment complexes that were trapped in there. I think that uh, I remember reading about uh, there must be some lawsuits happening with the uh, I think it was between the 
some of the businesses basically suing the city and be like, Hey, uh, you guys were, you know, we're supposed to prevent this kind of thing from happening. What's, what's right. going on. Right. Yeah. If your government can't prevent a couple of people armed with assault rifles taking over uh, a whole neighborhood, then it, you need a new government. I mean, that's the, that's the bare minimum of what I would hope for from, uh, from our government. And it's, and we're not meeting that standard. So it really is a problem. And it's not like they're not given a lot of money that, Portland has one of the highest tax rates in the country. Uh, I can tell you as a business owner here, we're, we pay taxes on everything. And where that money goes is certainly not to public safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, that there was, um, there's, there's a video that's been going around. It, it went viral. Uh, it's a, of a woman uh, in a different city in San Francisco who uh, she you know, recorded herself uh, telling the story about, I guess, earlier in the day she went outside and a a homeless dude bum uh spit in her face and said something like something along the lines of like you know I'll, I'll rape you or something like that and uh it's a horrible horrible thing to to hear and the responses to it i was you know i i was i'm not i'm not shocked by it but the amount of responses it's like uh you know one of them of of, of the line of it's sort of like well, you're in a big city, mm-hmm. you know, deal with it or, or keep walking or, oh, or, you know, uh, here, calling her like a Karen, mm-hmm. you know, for, for, you know, for, uh, explaining this or, uh, you know, you're just, she's just going to help feed this, uh, you know, racist narrative of, of the city. I don't even think she said what race the guy was maybe in a follow-up. I don't know. Um, but it, it's something too, where, where it's like, even, even the victims of violence get shit on. Yeah. When they just tell their story, like, "Hey, this really messed up thing happened to me," and you know, uh, and her, you know, being a being a woman. I mean, we're not that many years, uh, you know, beyond like the Me Too movement, where right. you know, the idea was, you know, something like this happens, you know, call it out, speak up, you know, yeah. uh, make a scene, and all that. Yeah. And, and yet, here here we are. Yeah, I saw that. I retweeted that video actually with a comment on it, but it, it that bothered me as well. Um, she got it from both political sides. So from the political yeah. left, you're going to get a bunch of people who who don't want anybody to talk about it. It happens here in Portland. We had a we had some progressive social social justice guy come from out of town and take a he took a couple of pictures of himself around Portland with a background where everything was really nice and kind of making fun of like a joke. All the people who are talking about how bad Portland is are clearly, you know, just conservative morons and you shouldn't be paying attention to them. Look how, look how beautiful it is. When in reality, we have a situation here in Portland where multiple times throughout the day, there's no ambulances. We had a woman, pregnant woman who was shot in the stomach yesterday and she didn't get an ambulance because so many drug overdoses, right? So many drug overdoses, so, so much violence that 911 is overwhelmed and ambulances are gone. That's what's going on. But you have these idiots who, who somehow, think they're doing a good thing by by minimizing the violence so she gets that from the left and then unfortunately on the right too i see uh, um, conservative people that i think sometimes make a huge mistake when they will jump on somebody like that and say well you voted for it right i'm sure you are you're you know a, a progressive democrat which statistically she probably is but um you know nobody votes to to want to get assaulted and i think a little bit of compassion would go a long long way right there um and, and so yeah it, it's an she she's going to get hit from from both the conservative 
and the far left, unfortunately, in a situation like that. When in reality, what we should be doing is looking and saying, how can we keep someone like her and anybody else, which could be me or my kids one day, how can we make it so this doesn't happen? Yeah. That's what we should be thinking about. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, the, the options that are afforded that woman, you know, uh, you know, to the people who say, well, you voted for it. It's like, well, you're kind of limited on who you can vote right. for. Cause I mean, she, she may have well, you know, she, she might be a, you know, a, a, a conservative who, you know, happens to live in San Francisco and is like, I'm, I'm, you know, she's more of a Ronald Reagan chick who know who knows. Um, and then, you know, to the, you know, to the people who say too, well, move out, you know, moving out is a really tough thing. Yeah. It, it's really, uh, it, it's a really difficult thing for people to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, over the years, you would think there'd be a lot more sympathy for people, especially with, you know, in the, uh, you know, financial times that we're living in, where it's like, you really can't just, you know, up and leave a, a city, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, many people would if they could, but. You know. Right. And, you know, what you said a minute ago, too, about limited options is really important because we get, I get, I see comments on Twitter all the time with people about Portland. Well, why do you still live in Portland? Where do you live in Portland for? You guys voted for this mayor, Ted Wheeler. You vote. You voted for him, Matt. Right. <laughs> yeah, you, and, that, uh, yeah. You were campaigning for him. Yeah. Which I definitely didn't, and, uh, <laughs> and I don't think you could find a bigger critic of Ted Wheeler than me. But having said that, what people don't realize why he won the election. He won the election because his opponent, Sarah Ioni, is a full-blown communist who is a declared member of Antifa, and she she's a grown woman who would camp wear a campaign dress that had Mao Zedong and Che Guevara on it, and she would post pictures on her Twitter of her write-in ballot and every time we had a city council or something like that going on in portland she would write in che Guevara. i'm not kidding and she was our option <laughs> so it, was, <laughs> it was it was her ted wheeler so i had i have to admit that you know myself and every other human being in portland that's somewhat sane were praying that ted wheeler won that election otherwise we'd have some communist lunatic in charge so it really you know we we have to be talking about how to get sensible adults to run for public office as well because a lot of times that really is just the case there's wh who do i have to pick from here yeah so um you know so maybe uh what what are the the solutions because um i think you know with your book i think a lot, a lot of people on the individual level can get a lot uh, a lot out of it um and hopefully it it inspires you know, people to start training as well, you know, uh, uh, whether it's at, you know, straight blast gym or, you know, other, um, uh, other Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools. Um, but yeah, what, you know, what, what, what can we do? Because I, I sort of, I look around, I'm like, man, I, 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 I don't know what I can do beyond, you know, yeah. for, for me and my, and my family, maybe the people who like to, you know, listen to me, have a conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. So the book's not a public policy book. The book right. is very specifically a book about how to keep yourself and the people that you love safe. And so somebody who's interested in doing that, what I try to do is write one book where everything I think you need to know to be able to keep yourself and the people you love safe is there. And so people who want to keep themselves and their family and, and know how to navigate the circumstances and who commits crimes and where they're committing crimes, why they're committing crimes and how you can protect yourself from all of it, um, is in that book. And then, of course, there's also a call to come train combat sport, some kind of combat sport, because I believe in my soul that that's good for everybody. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to help them as well. And, of course, if things ever turn physical, it would be helpful. But the vast majority, it's not a martial arts training book. It's a book about information on how to keep yourself safe. Having said that, I think there are breadcrumbs throughout the book because the, the book is filled with citations 
as to what we can do as far as public policy as well, even though that wasn't the point of the book. And you have basically two things. So you have short-term and long-term. Short-term, and here's the good news, if there is such a thing as it when it comes to this topic, is we do know how to fix this. I don't want anybody to think that this is a mystery, like, oh, it's such a complicated problem. We don't know how to fix it. We know how to fix it. Short term, you put a lot more police officers on the street and you let them engage in proactive policing. If you don't go after crime, crime's going to come after you. That means you let them patrol in the neighborhoods where these shootings are happening. You let them pull people over. You let them have gang enforcement teams. The first thing they did here in Portland was they got rid of the gang violence response team. And the next year, homicides and shootings tripled. That's not an accident. The Hmm. clear line between policy and action. This is what happened as a direct result of that policy. So, number one, you put the officers on the street. That's getting increasingly hard to do because nobody wants to be a police officer. Nobody wants to be a police officer in this environment. I would want my son to be a police officer in Portland because the way he would be treated by a good percentage of the people here. All the good officers who have a chance to retire are retiring. Mm. A lot of them who would otherwise stay on the job for the next five or 10 years to get more retirement are leaving early because they want to get out of out of the work. And whereas before you'd have thousands of people apply for a job at Portland PD, you know, you're down to maybe 150 applicants at most. And so we're getting worse candidates. You know, the quality of the type of police officer we're getting has actually diminished as well. So, number one, we have to stop that. We've got to get good people working in law enforcement, and put them on the street. That's number one. Number two, got to enforce all the laws. This idea where, you know, you're going to let them commit shoplifting and let them, you know, pitch tents on a freeway over ramp or, you know, put a a drug camp in front of a business or walk through Rite Aid with a garbage can and fill it up because these are nonviolent. That's not how it works. Broken windows policing worked. It worked in New York. It works. It's worked everywhere. It's been tried. You enforce the laws. And then three, when you run across repeat violent offenders, you need to lock them up and you need to pull them off the street. The vast majority of the real heinous violent crimes we see are committed by a very small percentage of violent criminal actors who are repeat offenders. And if you take them out of the community, it stops happening. And right now we have a revolving door, cashless bail. They're just in and out, in and out, in and out until they eventually kill somebody. That's what's happening. And you know when you see one of these assaults, when you see somebody get pushed in front of the train or somebody get stabbed in the head or something like that, I can guarantee you the person who did that has a long list of 20 or 30 previous felonies and had no business being on the street, but they were released and put back in the street anyway. Do those three things, and you will see a dramatic major drop in violent crime. That's short-term. Long-term, the biggest correlation that I've found for violent crime isn't poverty. People aren't committing violent crime because they're hungry or they need money. It's not about making money from the drug trade. If you really want to control violent crime, you have to pay attention to out of wedlock birth rates because the biggest, the the common denominator amongst all this is you basically have fatherless young boys murdering fatherless young boys over petty issues of status. You have people who are mentally ill, You have violent criminal actors like the um, burglars and things like that that do it for a living. But a lot of this is is fatherless young men shooting and killing or attacking other fatherless young men over petty issues related to status. And we're talking about less money than they would make working at McDonald's. And that's what's going on. So I think in long term, we have to look at any public policies that 
encourage, um, we want to discourage out of wedlock first. We want to encourage marriage. We want to en encourage, make sure we have a situation where it's not punitive to have the father in the home. And anything we do that that's counter to that is going to cause a lot of violence. And it's been shown over and over and over again. When you go in these neighborhoods that have the really high crime rates in Baltimore or New Orleans, the out of wedlock birth rate in those neighborhoods will be upwards of 95%. 95% of these kids have no dad at home. They're between 17 and 22, and they're shooting other people around the same age as them and the people who the kids who get caught in the crossfire. And we have to make sure that we put, a, we put an emphasis and a priority on building strong families and getting fathers in the home. And if you don't have enough fathers in the home, you're going to need more police. But police are short-term. Long-term, we've got we've to get back to somehow encouraging that. And I don't know the answer to that, but I know it. We have to somehow encourage uh, getting the dads in there and getting the dads taking care of the kids because without it, it's, this this problem will just continually cycle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. Yeah, it's uh, the the out of wedlock uh, birth thing. You know, it's like um, I had my first kid. What was he? Thirty eight. I was like thirty eight years old, and I got to uh, I got to tell the young young men out there, uh, I uh, if I had had a kid when I was sixteen, man, that would have been a big mistake. <laughs> the, holy shit! Um, but you know, the with a lot of the the crime stuff, I, mean, I think one of the things too that that needs to be done is there. We really need people who are I'm going to say uh, in positions of privilege. We need privileged people to stop justifying criminality. Yep. Um, because you know, even, uh, you know, like you brought up on one of the things they'll say is, well, you know, poverty, you know, creates crime. It's like, you know, who really hates criminals, poor people, poor yep. people really hate criminals because the idea that, you know, the, 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 the kids who are, or the, the criminals that are looting like the Walgreens or the, or the big, uh, you know, corporate, uh, drugstore, the idea that they're not fucking over the small mom and pop business is, is complete BS, you know, right. because that's who that, that's what they're doing. But we see it now with like the kids. Uh, oh, here they are running into a CVS and destroying it, ransacking it. And then, then they're running into the local like bodega mm -hmm. and doing the, and doing the same thing. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's so, it's so condescending. And especially when, when it, when it spills over into violent crimes, mm -hmm. murders and assaults and, and all that, um, you know, the, 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 there's something where it's like, if you want me to lose like all compassion for you, become a violent person, you know, do violence and I lose all compassion for, you. I don't care what your, you know, what your backstory is or, you know, um, uh, and, and all that. Yeah, it's incredibly true. We've, we, we've hit a weird point in our culture where people who commit violent actions now are not held responsible for their own behavior and, and what they're doing. While at the same time, we want to hold people accountable for things that your ancestors may have done two or three generations ago, which is a kind of a backward sort of madness. Mm. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of racism in, embedded in there as well, where we'll look at certain circumstances and just remove agency from the 17 or 18 year old kid. And you read about what, what they do sometimes, which can, be awful um they're responsible for that behavior and if you if you don't treat them like responsible agents you, nobody is going to be helped by that and 
you can't fix a problem. You misdiagnose. You know, when you had all the violence going on in the subways and you had people being pushed in front of the trains and, and whatnot, and I'd hear AOC come on and she would say, well, that's because um, they're hungry and they want to eat. It's got fuck all to do with them hungry and they want to yeah. eat. The people who are per- perpetrating these violent crimes aren't hungry. They're not robbing these stores because they need to put food on the table for their kids. It's not Les Miserables. So, I mean, she has such a, a naive take on where violence comes from that it, it makes me very pessimistic. The problem can be solved when we have people like that in office because you have to have people who understand what this is really about. And this is about out of control young men who don't have fathers in the home looking for an identity and then gathering together with other out of control young men and in packs creating mayhem and robbing stores and joining mobs and hurting people. And, and then eventually cycles into multiple felonies until they eventually kill someone. And that's what's happening. It's got nothing to do with, with um, being hungry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think back and like, you know, maybe a good idea is to uh, encourage, uh, small groups of friends like hey all you need is like one or two friends if any anything over six like you gotta you gotta walk the other way um i'm, I'm thinking is that when i growing up i used to play ice hockey and i'm just thinking my hockey team did we ever do anything crazy like that i don't think we ever did uh um ever did anything like that um it's it, switching uh, gears just a little bit um uh you uh, also have a a podcast uh with uh pete uh Bregosian, um yeah. and it's uh is it all things reconsidered? Is that yeah. all things reconsidered, all things which is, reconsidered, yeah. which is a plot. Uh, yeah. Maybe you just talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah. That was Pete's idea, which was, was genius. It was painful in one sense that, you know, we did two seasons of it. Um, I think that's it for that particular show, but the painful part about it was having to listen to NPR. So both of us were forced to listen to NPR for a while. And I, I had ceased listening to NPR multiple years ago because I realized that I, would have to count the seconds before I would hear somebody mention racism or something (laughs) like that. And I'd have to turn NPR off and it had just become insane. And he said, let's do a show where we'll just actually dissect the news and their breakdown of the news. And then we'll, we'll bring in the data and we'll talk about how skewed and, and insane it is. And it, and it, it lived up to that. I mean, NPR is absolutely awful. So it was, I mean, in one sense, it's kind of fun and some of it's kind of funny and you can't help but laugh at some of it because it's so crazy. But in another sense, it's kind of sad that you had an institution like that, that maybe it was always like that. But I kind of look back on it, you know, in the 80s and it seemed like, you know, NPR was always a little bit, you know, coastal elite left, but it wasn't crazy. And now we've entered into a, into an era where it's just ideologically captured and and some of the stories they run are just absolutely insane you know we did one on trans dinosaur emojis what when I, <laughs> trans dinosaur emojis and when i heard i heard it's exactly i heard the story and we're like read this article about trans dinosaur emojis and then we have to listen to the radio clip and i'm like what are you talking about and then when we we'd go into it we'd actually look at the history of it and it was a totally completely different story from what NPR was promoting. Like what NPR had talked about with it really had nothing to do with what had actually happened. And I, I, this is not journalism at all. It's just straight up pure propaganda. Yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, the elements of the, to the show that I really like is you'll have um, former fans of NPR call in mm-hmm. and basically tell you their, their, uh, 
I don't know if it's the road to Damascus or their the the the, the point when they found out that that NPR is not is not is not a god, and right. they turn and they turned away. Um, and uh, you know, there's so many examples of, of of people doing that. I think what it highlights though is that there is a real hunger that most people have for just truth. You know, mm-hmm. for just what's you know what's reasonable. And I think um, one guy who called in, he said the moment that he knew. Uh, he was, he's, uh, I don't know if he was a primatologist or something like this. And he was listening to a whole, um, NPR segment on the bonobos who are, yeah. uh, the, the bonobos, um, uh, uh, chimpanzees, I guess, a, a, a type of chimp. Um, and they're, you know, given this, uh, they're, they're almost magical, like how they're, you know, perceived, like they don't, they don't fight. They don't go to war. They're polyamorous. They'll, mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a stranger and you come in, they'll all have sex with you and they do, all have oral sex and, and yeah. stuff. And you're like, oh, my God, we should be more like the bonobos. It's possible to be like this. And uh, the guy basically said, yeah, I, I studied this stuff. It's complete bullshit. Like they, right. they, they have wars. They fight. They do all this stuff. There are certain things about them that are, you know, uh, you know they might be more inclined towards, you know, one way or another. Um, and it's that thing of like being <laughs> uh, you, you're hearing something that, that that's supposed to, you know, be. Um, uh, exp- uh, expressing the truth, uh, but then you're able to call out, you know, the the bullshit that uh, the the bullshit detection. I know in in your book you have a a, a bit on detecting uh, detecting bullshit. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. yeah, no, I think skepticism is a is a has always been a big part of my life, and, and martial arts skepticism in my own little weird niche of you know a lot of people don't realize the majority of martial arts are bullshit and don't work and. Um, there's a lot of superstition in martial arts, just like there is in religion and alternative medicine and that kind of stuff. So I've always kind of addressed critical thinking through that route and talked about it through the route of martial arts. But I do think it's important everywhere. That's why there's a chapter in the book on truth and epistemology and take an evidence based approach to everything and just and try and look at things honestly and see them for what they actually are. So that we do have a chance to make improvements. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely essential. And some of the stories on uh, the example of the opposite of that from NPR, some of the stories were so bad. The, their coverage of Kyle Rittenhouse um, mm. and just an, just an overwhelming kind of weird obsession with race. Everything was about race on NPR every single time. And I've had the privilege of traveling all over the country. I've had, I've also been able to go all over the world. My, strong opinion is America is the least racist nation on the planet, having traveled different countries. And um, most Americans are good people and they don't, they don't care, you know, what color your skin is or where your families were from two generations ago, but you wouldn't know that listening to NPR. You would think like, Oh my God, we're, we're, you know, just systematically racist, horrible, misogynistic nation. And they have this uh, completely not data driven backwards view of Western culture, uh, and it's really destructive. It's really destructive because you have young people that are, that wind up believing some of that stuff and then voting accordingly, and you get what we have here in Portland, where you get triple the shootings, and the people hurt by it again are always the most vulnerable, not not the wealthy. Yeah, and um, your um, your co-host Pete uh, Peter Bogosian, um, he's been doing a lot of uh, travel around the world, um, basically doing like these. I wouldn't necessarily call them like public, public debates, but um, sort of like these experiments or games where it's yeah. like just uh, getting uh, 
you know, strangers to come on camera and explain why they believe what they believe and what they, you know, uh, uh, and the reasons, you know, f- uh, for it. And, um, uh, I, I could, I could, he's, he's, uh, Peter's one of, one of your students. I know he has at least his, his purple belt, uh, purple under belt. you. Um, and I think I, I, uh, I bet that has a lot to do with how patient he's, he is able to be with so many, with so many of these people there. Um, sometimes they get really contentious and, and, you know, it, there, there are times I've been watching and I'm like, Oh man, is this guy actually going to like throw, throw at Pete? Is, is that, is that what's, what's going to go on? But he handles himself like with complete aplomb, which I'm yeah. sure is you know a mix of, you know, his, uh, his experience as a, as a professor. And then also, you know, him being a, um, a purple belt in BJJ. Well, he's remarkably patient. I've watched him sometimes and I'm amazed at how patient he is. It's not a job I could do. Pete, I've known Pete for a long time, it's probably uh, 25, 30 years now. And his uh, specialty in philosophy is when he was a philosophy professor here at the university was critical thinking. That's always been what he specialized in. And he would teach a class at the university and talk about critical thinking and uh, skepticism. And I would come in and, and give a talk about martial arts skepticism. And he'd have Michael Shermer and other people come in and talk about it. And it was the only class like it at the university. And he was constantly getting in trouble <laughs> before the, uh, what do they call it? The diversity board or, you know, some uh, weird 1984 name. But he was constantly getting called into the office because he used Star Trek as an example. And that was racist or just the stories he could tell me about. It was so crazy, so over the top that I told him, listen, you got to get out of the university and you just got to start talking to people about how insane this is because it truly is they, like they truly have lost their mind. And so he did. And I, and I, I think that's been a lot less stressful for him, which I'm super glad. And I think he does a good job now. He gets to use his time and travel around the world. And, and his way of dealing with people is to use the Socratic method, which can be really good. Um, it can come off if you do it the wrong way, it can come off condescending. But mm-hmm. he's not when he does it. He's he's always very sincere and he's asking people their legitimate opinion. And and he's just trying to plant a seed of doubt and see if he could get someone to to admit to him that potentially they would change their belief on a certain amount of evidence. What is that evidence? What would it take for you, you know, to think the opposite of what you're thinking now on this particular issue? And it is super interesting and it really is a, a good public service, but he does have a way of infuriating <laughs> infuriating a lot of people and he's a lot more patient than I am. I, I absolutely could not do that job. Uh, yeah. I, I, I watched, um, one of them was, they were about, they're about an hour long, uh, for most of them. And I was just like shaking my head the whole time. I'm like, and just, and just, uh, you know, blowing out uh, air. Um, so, so we've been, um, we've been talking about, uh, uh, local New York, Portland, Chicago. Uh, we've zoomed out a little bit about, uh, you know, the U S um, uh, one, one thing that, 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 that I know you've been following are um, you know, the UFO stuff that's happening and it's interesting here because as, um, uh, you know, as a skeptic for uh, in skeptic magazine and throughout, you know, all the years, all I would hear, whatever, you know, read about as far as like skeptics would be just debunk, 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 debunking, uh, everything that's going on. Um, but I think you have a little bit more of an open, uh, an openness to, uh, to, to this stuff. And, uh, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on basically what's been happening over the past, I don't know, a few weeks. It, se- it yeah, seems like more stuff confused. has come out. Yeah. Um, this is 
probably the first time I've actually, this is funny is it's the only person that ever asked me about this. This is probably the first time I've ever talked about this, but, um, and Pete and some of my other friends are going on. Don't <laughs> post the UFO stuff, you know, focus on your book. Don't talk about UFOs, but I, I can't help it. I'm so fascinated by the subject. Um, I saw one. So I saw one when I first moved here in Portland, along with my ex-wife, um, saw it very clearly. There's no, I'm not confused at all about what I saw in terms of, I mean, I don't know what it was, but I, I know what it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a plane. It wasn't. And, um, that just tends to change your perspective. You know, the, the default perspective for skeptics is these people are either lying or they're, they're seeing, they've saw something else and they don't understand exactly what it is because it's such an extraordinary claim that that could not possibly be true. And then if you wind up seeing something like that yourself, you know, it cause, calls that into question. And then I think when I hear David Fravor or some of these Navy and Air Force pilots who had eyewitness um, eyewitnesses to these things, I'm of the mind to believe them. Number one, all the incentives for these guys run the other direction. There is no good incentive if you're a pilot, especially, to want to land your plane and go tell your commanding officer and everybody else that you saw a flying Tic Tac or whatever. Like there's, it's not good for your career. And it definitely has not been good for the career of people in the military in the past. So there's a huge stigma. And, um, and then in 2017, Leslie Keene wrote that article, famous article in the New York times where she talked about the NIDS and Bob Bigelow space program and how much money the U S government had poured into this and how seriously they were taking it, which piqued my curiosity. And to be honest with you, after I saw that UFO, which was in the early 90s when I first moved to Portland, I didn't tell anybody about it. I didn't talk about it. I never read about it. It's just like I just completely put it out of my mind to the point where, to be honest with you, after a few years, I started to wonder if I'd actually seen it or maybe I'd imagined it. And then I sent my wife, who's now my ex-wife, a message, very vague message, and said, hey, do you remember seeing something on such and such day when we we're on the roof of my apartment. And then she wrote me back exactly what I had seen. Like, so I, I had seen this and then I think I just blocked it all out until 2017. I read this article by Leslie Keene. I got very curious about it. And so when I get curious about a subject like that, I tend to, to become obsessed and read dozens of books and watch dozens and it drives my wife crazy because now for like the next three years, all I'll be reading is UFO books and she, she can't wrap her mind around how I can become so obsessed, but I probably read about 60 books on it. And I realized as I was reading those books and the one that I always recommend to people who are interested in most recently is in plain sight by Ross Colhart, who's an investigative journalist from Australia who wrote probably the best synopsis of the history uh, and the evidence for UFOs going back to the forties. And you have the FOIA documents that have come out from the government and from Russia and from China. And, and when you look at it, you realize there is this enormous mountain of um, evidence, you know, a kind of evidence, much of it eyewitness documents, government documents. There is something going on that the military has been dealing with. They're not having potentially midair collisions with photographic anomalies. There's something up there that that's being recorded that they're having to deal with. You know, just to, oh, just to uh, come in just for a sec. Um, yeah. I mean, there was only a few years ago that there was like a documentary about this stuff where you had, I mean, 
you know, officials from the military who were speaking on camera about this. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a real shock because, you know, most of the time you, you would hear this stuff just from like loonies, you know, from kooks. Right. And then here you had, you know, people, you know, talk, talking about it. And then uh, in that documentary, there were, there were so, so many examples of fighter pilots mm -hmm. saying, I don't know what the hell that is. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know what's going on. This thing is moving. It's, it was here and now it's, now it's over there, mm -hmm. um, which di didn't strike me as anything that seemed um, scripted, you know? Oh. So. No, I think the I think the watershed moment for because because the government and th this we know is intentional. The government has intentionally created a stigma around this topic. There has been a disinformation campaign that's been at play, beginning in the late '40s and early '50s that the government was involved in, and it to a degree worked. It created a huge stigma to the point where I don't think most journalists ever wanted to touch the topic or have anything to do with it. And if somebody would mention the subject, everybody kind of have a laugh and then they would move on. And that's exactly what I think the intention was behind the, behind that producing that stigma. And it was effective. But in 2017, that New York times article, I think broke through that. And then it was shortly thereafter, 60 minutes, American 60 minutes did a show on it where they interviewed some of these pilots. And, and they asked one of them that was flying out off the East coast who'd seen one of these objects himself, they said, well, how often do you guys see these when you go out on maneuvers? And he's like, oh, every day. You see them every day. They're out there on the ocean every day. And um, so most recently, David Grush, who gave, who was the whistleblower who gave the testimony at the, at the UFO hearing two weeks ago, supposedly given names and um, locations of where the crash vehicles are and the people who've worked on it. And he's given that to people who have the clearance to know in the Senate and in Congress. And the question is now, will they follow up on it? But he testified under oath and penalty of going to prison for a long time. If he was caught lying to this, I don't know why anybody would do that as a hoax. Unless he's in Portland, in which case yeah. he won't do any prison time. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's an exciting time because now um, this is in the official congressional record and their tasks, there's legislation now where they're tasked with actually investigating it and coming up with some answers. And so, uh, you know, I've had some fun conversations with this, with uh, Michael Shermer, who's a friend of mine. In oh, yeah. and, and, you know, he's convinced that this will fall apart as it always has in, in the past and it won't amount to anything. Um, but I'm not so sure. I think this time, you know, we may be living in a new era where, um, there is some kind of disclosure that's going on. You know, I wonder if uh, what the response will be like, because uh, I think it was around that time uh, when the New York Times article came out, you know, we, we, uh, we had Twitter and it seemed like it was something that, you know, it was a few retweets and then we were back on whatever other, whatever bullshit Trump was doing, you know, this is the, you know, I've no wild. Yeah. It is wild. And I, this is something that I've talked to my wife about a lot as well. It's like, I'm as, I'm as interested in how we as a society react to this subject as I am in the subject. Because when, mm. you know, when you have a pilot come on like that on 60 minutes on the record, testify before Congress as well. He, he also testified at the hearing and they say, well, we've seen these things every day. And then you've got radar operators and the other people, the people that work behind the, that have records of these things, apparently satellite images of these things. You have all this kind of stuff. You think that would make the news. Right. And then the congressman will have you guys had any uh, collisions with these vehicles? And then the guy goes, well, we've had, you know, 16 near misses in the last. Why is that not the biggest mm -hmm. news 
in the world right now. Yeah. And and the very next day, it's like it wouldn't surprise me if Biden got up in front of uh, in front of everybody tomorrow and announced that there's aliens here, and then everybody's like, eh. yeah, just go back <laughs> to watching television and nobody pays any attention to it i, I really I truthfully can't wrap my mind around how people react to the subject sometimes because it, it, it if it's true the biggest fucking thing that's ever happened humanity yeah yeah and and i you know uh uh who was it i think um i think it was neil degrasse tyson before he he went a little uh a little little too woke um he, he had brought up uh you know it's ufos unidentified flying objects so if you say, yeah, I saw an unidentified flying object, uh, it's, uh, you know, reasonable. We don't know what that object was, whatever the, um, the military are interacting with up in, uh, up in the air, you know. But it's funny because you still have to make that leap to say, it, this, this, this is alien craft. This is, mm-hmm. you know, um, and um, are, are you ready to go there? Or- no. No. So, yeah, you know, what, the, the, what they will constantly remind everybody is, oh, yeah, 95% of the time, all of these things have a prosaic explanation. Yes, it's 100% true. It's always been true. It's that 5% that we're interested in. It's not yeah. the 95%. I'm interested in the 5% that you don't have an explanation for. Even if you go back to Project Blue Book by J.L. and Hynek, they had a certain amount of cases that they just could not solve. And at the end of his career, when, when Project Blue Book wrapped up, he'd become a believer because he'd seen enough personal evidence himself. Um, as far as what they are, aliens, interdimensional, time, I have no idea. I know what I saw. I know what it looked like. I don't know if it was piloted. Is it AI? Are there things inside there? The leap to these are extraterrestrial aliens from some particular faraway part of the galaxy, I don't know how anybody would come to that conclusion unless they have crashed and people have gotten bodies, but you know, I don't, I don't know what these things are, and nobody, I, the people I know who are involved in the, in the issue and on the ground journalists and stuff that are dealing with it, I don't know anybody that claims to know what it is either. That taken seriously, what they'll, what they'll say, what the military people say is, we don't know, but their, their, um, their technology seems to be doing things that are way beyond what we're capable of doing. That's what we do know. They can go underwater. They can go in space. They can travel these enormous speeds and take these right-hand turns that would kill any pilot, you know, alive today. And we have no idea how that, how that was done. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. At the, at the end of the month, um, August 31st, um, I host a show called the wrong take. Um, and it's a live show in Rutherford, New Jersey. I wish you were going to be on the East coast because that's the subject UFOs. We're going to, we're going to be uh, debating that. So um, uh, a buddy of mine, Todd CV, he's going to come from the, uh, the skeptic side and then a comedian, Sean Donnelly, uh, who's very been big in UFOs for, uh, for a while now. He's going to be coming uh, from the other side. And it's a debate in that, you know, we have, we disagree, but it it should be, um, it should be a really fun time. But um, uh, yeah, Matt, uh, thank you so much. Once again, Matt, He's got his book out, The Gift of Violence. And I want to thank Matt for not only writing the book, but also giving me the gift of his second appearance here on the Lou Perez podcast. Um, Matt, where can uh, people check out your stuff? Thank you, Lou. I appreciate it. Um, MattThornton.org is my website where, you know, they can pick up the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Indie Share, Gift of Violence. And, uh, and I'm at Aliveness Safe on um, Twitter. 
Cool. And and guys, if you pick up the book, please write a review of it because that goes a long way on Amazon uh, for sure. It helps with the, uh, with the algorithm. All right. Appreciate it.